It's good to be here, and it was good to be here last night. We had a great meeting last night, I felt, and uh, it's good to be again with you. And I will be saying some things very similar to last night. There'll be some, perhaps some, some variation there, nevertheless. I also add here, um, Dan mentioned that my area of expertise is in, is in Israel, and uh, that's not quite correct, actually. First and primary concern is the Word of God to expound the word of God. That, to me, is above all. But then after that, actually, my doctoral studies were done on John Bunyan and the Pilgrim's Progress and 17th century Puritanism. So if you like John Bunyan, Pilgrim's Progress, you can talk to me about that later. However, uh, the area we are looking at this morning is an area that is, as has been said, very controversial. And in saying that, I, I only hope you'll understand my intent here is not to win an argument, to persuade you. And because we're going to deal dealing with ethical matters in the area of eschatology. Eschatology is the doctrine of the last thing. Sometimes we use the word biblical prophecy, but more often we now speak of eschatology. And in eschatology, there are three main schools that are all linked, really, or based upon the sure, certain, personal, historic return of Jesus Christ, as even the, uh, the apostles were told in Acts 1 there. This same Jesus, whom you have seen ascend into heaven, shall so come in like manner. He's coming back. But the question is of timing. He will come back in history, but the question of timing, and we have three schools. We have the post-millennial school that says that we are really in the millennium now and then at the end of this age uh, Christ will return. They, they see this world as an earthly millennium and often with a lot of political input as well but that's another matter. We won't touch on that really much because it's the minority view really and then we have the millennial school which by the very letter A what we call the alpha privative there that negates that there is an earthly millennium coming after the return of Christ. Uh, they would say we're in the millennium, except that it's a sort of a spiritual millennium we're living in right now with the church and Christ reigning in heaven. There was then the premillennial uh, scheme, understanding, and this would certainly be the position of the college here. It's my own position. I've held this basically for most of my Christian life. And it says that Jesus Christ will return bodily, personally, and then after that he will establish a messianic kingdom. We sometimes call it the millennium after basically Revelation chapter 20. Now, in approaching this, uh, and some of you, this is, you know, you know it well. Uh, I'm approaching this especially as the premillennial and the amillennial schools uh, consider Israel and the Jewish people in relationship to that future millennium, etc. And this is very controversial. As I said, I'm going to say some things probably that are pretty strong. And if you have some millennial sympathies, please understand, bear with me, I have absolutely no desire to hurt your feelings personally, but I do ask that you'll listen to me, especially in two areas one of church history, and the other, the Word of God. I've had some millennialists even suggest to me, Barry, I don't want to talk about church history. And uh, just the Scriptures. Well, we all look at the Scriptures. That is primary, I agree. But we're not going to avoid church history. 
Because church history really is a record of Christian behavior. I think there's no argument on that, is it? Church history is a record of Christian behavior. And Christian behavior is critical for any Christian, whether it's an individual or a denomination or whatever group you belong to. Because otherwise we then move into hypocrisy. And we believe if I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, then my life should have some reflection of who he is and what he stands for and what he has done. And if I play the hypocrite, there's something radically wrong, perhaps even my understanding of Jesus Christ. But there must be consistency between this Son of God, holy, harmless, undefiled, and those who follow him also, who are to be holy even as God who is holy. So there's got to be consistency there in terms of uh, by eschatology and the ethics that come forth from it. And this leads me to my profound concern uh, with the amillennial system. And I, I'm the first to agree, the predominant eschatological system through the centuries has been the amillennial system. No argument about that except that. Right from the middle of the second century, Justin Martyr, on through Augustine and up through the Reformation, right on through there. Uh, with uh, Luther and with Calvin, etc. The basic uh, view has been amillennial. But in the history of the church, the attitude of the church at that time toward the Jewish people can only be called as disgusting, so, 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 so bad, uh, so shameful that you need to know about it. And this is the way things go. If the church has so mistreated the Jewish people, what is the eschatology that has led them to do this? And this behavior, as I say, goes right through the history of the church. And again, it starts roughly in the second century. Uh, we know certainly that uh, the church father there, Justin Martyr, said that the church now has become Israel. Or the church is the spiritual Israel. And historic Israel, as we know in the Old Testament, that is passe. That's really God. The church has now accumulated the promises to Israel. And now the church is a spiritual Israel. If you believe in Jesus, you're a spiritual Israelite. It also says, too, that whereas in the Old Testament we have clearly the promise of the land, we know about the land of Israel and so forth in the Old Testament. But the amillennial system says, no, now that we're in the church age, the world is the land, not just that region, just, you know, beside the Mediterranean. And you can see now, if you're Jewish, uh, what does this mean? Basically, it negates your identity. Because anyone who believes in Jesus is a spiritual Jew, and there's no distinct, distinction ethnically, nationally, and territorially. Now, I would have to say this, the premillennial scheme, especially from the middle of the 17th century on, has been generally understood to be in association with Revelation 20. In other words, Revelation 20 gives you the timing, the order of the uh, millennium and its size, a thousand years and so forth, mentioned six times there. And uh, that's, uh, that's what we have there. But there's more to it. You go to the book of Zechariah. I know one amillennialist who, who, who frankly confessed, he wasn't premillennial, he was amillennial, an amillennial scholar, and he said, if I personally said, if I was really, uh, if I was premillennial, he said, I wouldn't start really with Revelation 20, 
he said, I'd start with Zechariah 14. And he said, that passage gives us a, such a lot of trouble, as well as other parts, of course, of Zechariah. So what he was saying was that there is a parallel, as it were, between uh, a great passage like Zechariah 14, and you've got uh, Isaiah chapter 11, and you've got Ezekiel 37, the vision of the Valley of Dry Bar, and all, there's so many passages that in the Old Testament are eschatological, and they are simply pointing, surely, to a future messianic kingdom, and the premillennialists will say, well, yes, of course, we have that also delineated in Revelation 20. And so there's a real overlap, there's a real relationship there. Uh, but basically, the premillennial view says also that Israel will be restored. There's what we call restorationism. Uh, Ezekiel 37 is just a classic, clear passage on that. And uh, Israel will be converted according to Revelation chapter 11, verse 26, and so all Israel will be saved, etc. And so Israel is not, as it were, passe. It's not past. It's not back there. Thank you very much, but now we have the church. That is where the millennial system stands. However, in my studies and both of these books, I have given, I think, such a large amount of evidence of how the church from the middle of the second century right up to today has mistreated the Jewish people. I would say, and I, I can stand by this with a lot of evidence, I believe the greatest sin of the Christian church has been its mistreatment of the Jewish people. Now, let me go back a little bit here because this gets to the book here, which is called Why Christian uh, why, uh, why Christian anti-Judaism uh, must be challenged. I use the word anti-Judaism or ar-Judaism rather than anti-Semitism, though there's a, there can be overlap there very much. The only reason is because anti-Semitism was coined in about 1850 by a correspondent um, in, uh, uh, from, uh, he was from Austria really, but he was over in Paris and he coined the term first. He was, he was a secularist, even I think a socialist, Marxist and so forth. But he anyway coined the term uh, anti-Semitism and from then on it's been used and it has a very, very nasty odour about it. If I use the word anti-Judaism or ar-Judaism, they're, they're closely related. The ar-Judaic person would simply again be denying Israel having any present identity uh, since, uh, since the beginning of the church, or anti-Judaism would be just more militantly opposed to it. And I've listed some of those, uh, the, the, there's no question. The way some such uh, uh, writers, uh, including reformed writers, have written about the Jews in this area, that they're negated, it's passe, it's gone, the church now has taken over, uh, it's pretty ugly. And I've listed a lot of that. But I want to explain a little more uh, and get into some history and get into some scripture here um, about how this book started. A friend of mine, a very uh, good scholarly friend, uh, he's premillennial, but we're talking about this whole matter of uh, uh, how we can possibly make the case really that God is still covenantally uh, concerned about the Jewish people that he has not, as it were, passed by them now. Uh, the kingdom has been taken uh, from them and given to another. They'll quote that from Matthew and so forth. And um, so how can we show uh, the premillennial scheme best in this matter of Israel? And we came to the conclusion, the answer is we have to show from the New Testament that God is not finished with the unbelieving Jew. 
And there's a majority of unbelieving Jews over in Israel right now. Although the Messianic Christian movement has made a lot of inroads there. Nevertheless, most of Israel over there would be uh, certainly even, you get even what they call atheistic Jews over there. They don't believe in God, but they're Jews. Uh, that's a contradiction in term, it seems to me. But nevertheless, the main thing is um, we have to show <coughs> that God right now is still interested in the Jew. It is unbelief. He's interested in, even over there in the land. And uh, the verse that struck me like a bolt of lightning is found in Romans chapter 11, verse uh, 28. If, you, if you'd turn there, please, if you've got your Bibles, you should have your Bibles. This is a Bible college, isn't it? So it seems to me if, if, if it's a Bible college, you'll have your Bible. Is that right? Okay. Just a little, just a little gentle uh, statement there, isn't it? Romans chapter 11. Would you turn, please, to Romans chapter 11? The verse is verse 28. I was preaching through Romans, and it was when I came to this 28th verse, it sort of hit me almost like a thunderbolt. And I thought, this is the verse. This verse makes it so plain that God right now is very much covenantally interested in Israel, even in their unbelief. Let me read the verse to you. From the standpoint of the gospel, they... And that speaks of the Jews there. They are enemies for your the for the for your the um, they are enemies for your sake, for the Gentiles' sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice or election, you could translate that there. And we we think of often you hear of Israel spoken of as the chosen people, etc. But from the standpoint of God's choice or election, Israel, the Jews, the Jews here, they are beloved. For the sake of the fathers. Note back in the beginning of the verse, from the standpoint of the gospel, they, the Jews, are enemies. And he's speaking in the present right now as he writes. They're enemies for all the Gentiles' sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice and election, and that goes back to Abraham also, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. And furthermore, look at the next verse, which only confirms this. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. That's referring again to the steadfastness even of the Abrahamic covenant. It is still as certain and sure, you know. But the main point is in the previous verse, verse 28 here, is that the Jews who are enemies right now, Paul says, enemies of God, yet on the other hand, they're beloved for the sake of the fathers. And I coined the term, that Israel in Romans 11:28 is described as being beloved enemies, you know. Now, of course, that leads us to the future too about they shall eventually one day, as Zechariah tells us, look upon him whom they have pierced. A nation will be born a day and there's going to be a restoration of Israel spiritually. They'll be converted. All Israel will be saved. You read back there in verse 26. And while there's dispute over that verse, I understand that. Uh, Calvin said that all Israel there is just referring to the church. Uh, but one very, very great reform commentator, John Murray, looked at this and he couldn't accept what F Calvin understood there and finally came to believe. And in John Murray's commentary on Romans, which may be in your library, uh, he came to the conclusion that all Israel there meant a future mass conversion at the end of the age. And he didn't go the full distance, seems to me. He sort of 
He said a mass conversion. He, he, he doesn't use the word nation, but obviously it, it's involved there. But the main thing is, he said, Romans 11:26. there is not speak about the church there, all Israel shall be saved. It's speaking about a mass conversion. And that, to me, it seems to me, is the obvious understanding of it here. And so that verse particularly uh, convinced me here was a clear statement that God right now is interested in unbelieving Israel. God has not pushed them aside. They are not passe. Uh, the church has not supplanted or replaced Israel. And that's the argument. Now, the argument that says the church is now the new Israel, therefore says that Israel of the past is no more. They will sometimes use the word, well, the church has fulfilled Israel. You know, they'll use these different words. Uh, they don't like to say, oh, I don't believe in replacement theology. The church has replaced Israel. Well, then, again, they'll use these other words. The church has fulfilled Israel. It all ends up with the same conclusion, that national Israel is passe, it's gone. Their identity is over. Ethnically, nationally, and territorially. That's the question, you see. And uh, you will find, <coughs> yes, this belief by Justin Martyr, that the church is now Israel, and historic Israel is passe. This was the view that is stated by Justin Martyr in the middle of the second century. That goes back a long way to the early period of the church, does it not? Now, I want to point out something else, however, that was going on then. There's a very famous church historian called Eusebius. Uh, he was a very close friend of Constantine. Constantine was certainly anti-Judaic. And Eusebius was anti-Judaic. But in his church history, which is probably the most famous historic church history there is, he describes how the church of Jerusalem had a bishop. His name was called James the writer of the epistle of James and so forth. He was the earthly brother of our Saviour, part of that family. James was the first bishop of Jerusalem, the church there in Jerusalem. And uh, Eusebius tells us, and he lists the first 15 bishops in Jerusalem, of Jerusalem, if you like. And uh, he lists them all. All the first 15 bishops there in the church of Jerusalem, they were all Jewish. Then he goes on and he lists the next 15 uh, bishops uh, of the Church of Jerusalem. They're all Gentile. And you go on from there. You can go beyond that. That's 30 bishops. Go on beyond that. And you go on up to Augustine. You go on through the Middle Ages and, and the Renaissance and all through there. And you come up even to the time of Luther and Calvin. If there was any bishop in Jerusalem, it was always Gentile. Not till about 1850 or 60, the Anglican Church in Jerusalem eventually appointed a Jewish bishop in Jerusalem. There had never been anything like it in the Anglican Church <coughs> or even in the Catholic Church. And so through the centuries, from the second century onwards, right up to this time, there has been the dominance of the idea in the Catholic Church, in the Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Anglican Church, Lutheran Church even, there has been this idea Israel basically has lost its identity historically, it's passe, and therefore now the, the, the Christian Church is the new Israel and the world is the land. Now I go to my Bible, I, I get troubled by this terribly because it ends up in 
demeaning the Jew. Imagine witnessing to a Jew <laughs> and telling him about Jesus is the Messiah, he's the Son of God. He died for sinners such as you. Believe in him and you'll be reconciled to the Father in heaven and so forth. You tell the good news. Oh, by the way, <coughs> by the way, when you become a Christian, all your Judaism is gone. During history, how, I mean, do you think any Jews can accept that? And I'm not for a moment when Paul was itinerating around Asia Minor and Europe, and he always, not only, he, mis, he ministered to Gentiles, of course, that was his main calling, but he also everywhere he goes, he goes to the synagogue, the synagogue. Do you think Paul went to the synagogue and told about Christ as their Messiah, and by the way, once you believe in him, you lose your Jewish identity? That's where the problem really is rooted. I, um, I have some amillennial friends. I've preached in amillennial churches. One I preached in in Melbourne about two years ago. And a uh, good fellow <coughs> trained at a Presbyterian seminary in Melbourne. And uh, I, I didn't want to press him too much on this. I thought he wasn't of my opinion. But before I left, I began to talk to him. He says, oh, Barry, he says, I'm amillennial. I said, all right. I said, tell me this. I said, um, when our Savior Jesus Christ returns, will he come back as a Jew? or a Hebrew, he said, no. You could have picked me up off the floor. I couldn't believe it. I then said to him, well, tell me this. Do you believe when our Savior comes back, he'll have nail prints in his hands? He said, I'll have to think about that. He could see the connection, logically speaking, there, you know what I mean? I was speaking at a minister's fraternal down in uh, Tucson in Arizona about three weeks ago. And uh, I was speaking on this very topic. And uh, afterwards, I then sat down and talked with someone. One man there, he was obviously Amalena, and he wanted to really challenge me on this, you know. But I asked him the same question. I said, tell me, when our Savior returns, will he come back as a Jew or he? Oh, he said, that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, friends. I tell you, my salvation, your salvation, is based upon the quintessential Jew in history. He is the perfect Jew. He is a sinless Jew. You know? On the cross, what was the sign there? The king of the Jews. In John chapter 4, our Savior said, salvation is of the Jews, plural there. And you're telling me it doesn't matter? This, friends, is the problem with this whole school of thought because it is an eschatology that has a bad ethical record. I could spend time going through some of the church fathers such as Chrysostom and Ambrose and Augustine. Augustine is the giant theologian of that period and he is the giant theologian right up to the time of Luther. I want you to turn, if you've got a Bible, please, to Psalm 59. I want to show you very clearly how Augustine, this North African church father, great theologian, he wasn't, frankly, he wasn't such a great exegete, believe me. But when you come to Psalm 59, uh, let me show you something here that um, he said. Look at Psalm 59. Now, notice there, it's a, it, my Bible, my New American Standard Bible says, prayer for deliverance from enemies. 
a miktam of David, etc. And uh, look at verse 11 anyway. Do not slay them or my people will forget. Scatter them by your power and bring them down, O Lord our shield. Augustine said that verse speaks about how we should regard the Jews. Now I challenge you when you go to your room or wherever you are and study the psalm. It's not there. David is speaking about his enemies there. He speaks about some Gentile enemies and some Jewish enemies there. But it's nothing to do with what Augustine then established as a major eschatological thrust, you know. And that was that we, we, <coughs> we don't let them grow and expand, we humiliate them. We don't kill them, that was the point. Augustine, we don't kill them. Uh, but we let them survive, but not, we don't let them thrive, you know. Uh, there's a book written by a Catholic scholar called James Carroll, uh, and uh, it's called Constantine's Sword. It was a bestseller on the New York Times list. Carroll was a Paulist Catholic priest, but he began to study this whole matter in church history as a Catholic, you know. And you read this big fat book here, and I'll tell you, he is ashamed. He is stunned to find the history of the Catholic Church and the way it mistreated the Jew. And it has, and it does now. The Catholic Church, I've got its documents. It says it is the now the spiritual Israel. And in Constantine's Sword, that book by Carroll, he, he makes this point that Augustine taught, let the Jews survive but not thrive. Don't kill them but keep them humiliated because they're Christ slayers. That was a common term during those centuries. The Jews are Christ slayers. What arrogance. When the Gentiles are equally Christ slayers. You can prove that in Acts 4 very clearly. And if you're a Jew... You're a Christ slayer if you're an unbeliever. But nevertheless, all the Gentiles here, you're Christ slayers. That's what Acts 4 says. But the church during the centuries would say the Jews, they were the really big, big, bad sinners because they crucified Christ, you see. We're not so bad. And that has gone on through the church, through the centuries. Augustinian doctrine. Now, I, I, again, understand me. I'm speaking here about his eschatology, not his soteriology. His soteriology would be Augustine on the gospel and so forth. And in that era, I'll confess, he said some wonderful, great things. The older he got, the better they got. But we're talking about Augustine's eschatology. And what he taught about, let them survive but not thrive, flowed on through the centuries. Uh, take Martin Luther. You know what Martin Luther is? He's an Augustinian monk. <coughs> Where do you think Augustine got his eschatology from? And it flows through in his life because at the end of his life he said terrible things about the Jews. Shocking things. Go on to John Calvin. John Calvin in his Institutes. The latest, the most modern two-volume set I have. Go to the back of it, the indices there. Look up all the references that he makes <coughs> to various church fathers. You will find he quotes Augustine more than anyone else and he quotes him 700 times. <coughs> I'll put this little thing in my throat and that'll help. Do you understand? And, and Calvin, the next person in that list of uh, authors he quotes, <coughs> he, um, I think the closest one he quotes 400 times. Now, 
The eschatology of Luther and Calvin is basically amillennial. No question about it. The Missouri Synod Lutheran Church, which is a little more conservative among the various Lutheran churches we have today, in its doctrinal statement, specifically <coughs> states that the church is the Israel. It takes a, a very firm, clear, amillennial stand. That's the church. Lutheran church has a lot to answer for here, but it's not the only one. What about the Anakin church? Let's go back to 1290 in England. Of course, at that time, the church is Catholic, Roman Catholic in association there. But in 1290, anyway, the king was King Edward. I think it was about King Edward IV. And anyway, <clears throat> he came forth with a decree. And actually, the crown was in conjunction with the church. They weren't in cahoots. But the decree came out and let all the Jews be expelled from England. <clears throat> They're expelled for something like 360 years. You've never heard of that, probably. In fact, before Edward did this in 1290, the 200 years before that, were, uh, again, full of anti-Semitism and that sort of thing. There's a book, a very, very great book has come out. It's called A History of Anti-Semitism in England. And the author is a Jew called Anthony Julius. Julius is a top scholar in England. He actually was even uh, a lawyer for the uh, concern of uh, Princess Diana to be uh, when she was divorced eventually from Charles. And he, he was her lawyer. And he writes this book. It's published by Oxford. It's about 800, 900 pages. And it's all about anti-Semitism in England. And obviously, it deals with this matter I've just told you about 1290 onwards for 360 years. He gives all the details about it. He gives so much more. But let me tell you, at the beginning of the book, there's an introduction. <clears throat> and in the introduction, he writes, and he says, writing this book was right, like wading through a long, long sewer. And uh, uh, again, if you're an Anglican or an Episcopalian, you wouldn't want to know about this. But it's true. And what happened was, in about 1655, after the revolution and Oliver Cromwell comes to have power as a protector and so forth, in Holland, there is a Jewish rabbi <coughs> called Manasseh ben Israel. Manasseh ben Israel is a scholar, a good, godly man. Uh, he lives in the same street as the, uh, oh, what's the, what's the portrait? What's the, I'm trying to think of the painter there. Uh, Rembrandt. <coughs> he lives on the same street. But anyway, the Jews are being so persecuted over in the east, they're flooding across, coming across the west, you know, and they're coming across into Holland there and so forth. And Manasseh ben Israel figures that the best answer to help them would be to have more of them be able to go over into England from where they had been expelled. So Manasseh ben Israel goes across the channel. He takes a gift to Cromwell. It's a big silver platter. On it are engraved the 12 tribes of Israel. And he meets with Cromwell. Cromwell is a godly Christian man. Whatever you may say about him, he was a guy, and he, 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 he was pro-Israel, he was pro-the-Jews, no question about it. He even had a conference brought about <clears throat> at that time where all people, all the leaders and the clergy and everyone could come together and really talk about this matter. And boy, he had trouble trying to convince them that the Jews should come back. In fact, some of the Puritans 
didn't want him to come back. Some would agree, but some didn't. The Puritans, they've got soil hands in this too. <clears throat> and so uh, uh, Cromwell had trouble with this conflict. So he shut it down. But he, with his influence and power, just simply determined the Jews can come back. And they came back uh, with um, a gradual sort of scheme. Oh, thank you, brother. Isn't that thoughtful? <coughs> Oops. And uh, <coughs> what better? Thank you. Anyway, uh, Cromwell agreed that the Jews could return, <clears throat> not in just one sudden swoop upon England. He allowed them to come back gradually. But they came back, they were able to build synagogues, and finally, you know, even later on, much later on, there even came about a British prime minister, Israeli, who was Jewish, you know. And so, anyway, all I'm trying to point out is <clears throat> 360 years the Jews are expelled from England. Now, the real question is, what was the doctrine? What was the whole understanding of Scripture and Christianity <clears throat> that drove them to do such a terrible thing? The church was in cahoots with the crown here. They all agree on this. The answer is Augustinian eschatology. Julius will confirm this. There's no question about it. And so again, you see the record gets uglier. It's just as a little here and a little there. Uh, and so the question comes then, if you've got such a bad eschatology that produces, correction, if you've got an eschatology that produces such bad ethical results, there has got to be something wrong with the eschatology. It, it follows, and, and history will show this. In the book here, I've got an appendix that's got about 20-odd references to writers, and they're liberal, they're Jewish, they're conservative, they're, you know, like Carol and so forth. All of them, and they have different thoughts in many ways, but all of them agree about the terrible things the church has done to Judaism. What does the Apostle Paul say in Romans there? Does he not say we ought to make them jealous? Do you think this has made the Jewish people jealous? It's made them run, friends. When I meet a Jew, I usually or quickly try to say, look, I, I know the problems you faced as a Jew. I want you to know, again, I'm sympathy with you. I'm on your side. You know. And I begin to tell them what some things I believe. And they begin then to warm up. Things are much more you know, pleasant then. <clears throat> but they are used to fleeing because they know the history of what the Gentile church has done to the Jewish people, and it's because of a bad eschatology. And if you don't believe that, see me afterwards. We can go back and forth. I've got so much more information here. Um, what happens here also, however, has been <clears throat> the rise after Cromwell and uh, the 17th century there, uh, suddenly publishing began to, publishing began to really rocket. Uh, previously, of course, we know that there was uh, <clears throat> printing and so forth that brought forth the Bible and Tyndale and so forth, and the people began to ha get hold of the scriptures. But nevertheless, um, the suffering uh, of those who would have any other theology other than Armillennialism was pretty severe. In 1621, there was a Jewish uh, lawyer. No, correction, correction. He wasn't Jewish, sorry. Sir Henry Finch, 
he was, he was Gentile. But Sir Henry Finch in 1621 published a book uh, that dealt with theology and especially the destiny of the Jews. He was a top lawyer. The king had consulted with this lawyer. You know, he was at the top there of the legal profession there in London and so forth, and the king respected him. But then, 1621, he published his book, and in this book he declared, he studied the Bible, the Jews are going to return to the land. The Jews are going to be converted. The Jews are going to rise again. King James, allow the King James Bible, same King James. King James didn't like it. What they did to Sir Henry Finch, they stripped him of his title, they stripped him of his legal qualifications, they put him in jail, they took away his property, and he died in jail. What caused King James to do that? The inheritance of Augustinianism, etc., etc. You know? You, you feel such horror that in the name of Christ, our Saviour, people could do such things. I haven't got much time, but I want to get to one passage of Scripture. Uh, if you turn to Acts 1, please. I just have to... I could go on for a few hours here, but we haven't got that. Uh, in Acts chapter 1, I just want to close on this point. I think this would be good to finish on. Acts chapter 1. <clears throat> I think I've already referenced the, um, that passage already, but I want to point something out here in Acts chapter 1, if I may. Yeah, I've just got four or five minutes here. Acts chapter 1, <clears throat> so when they had come together, they were asking him, our Saviour, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. I think it's obvious. Our Saviour is saying, listen, that's not just going to come about right now. Wait. He doesn't deny that there's a future for Israel, the restoring of the kingdom. He doesn't deny that at all. But he obviously says, no, you've got to wait for the church age, the dispensation in which the gospel will go to the four corners of the earth. But this is the question I want to ask you. When the disciples ask this question... <coughs> Will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Do you think that was an idea that had just suddenly come to them? Of course not. Why do they ask our Saviour about this? Surely, obviously, it's because they had already been taught about this by our Saviour. If you don't believe that, turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 19. Verse 27, the disciples had been taught about the restoration of Israel. They'd been taught this. Look at this verse here. <clears throat> then Peter said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. <clears throat> what then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, the rebirth, Palangenesia, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Pretty clear, isn't it? The amillennialists, they have tremendous troubles in handling this verse. I think it's very plain what it's saying. Clear. Furthermore, this reference actually is also included in Luke's gospel. 
If you go to any harmony of the Gospels and look where those two quotations, Matthew and Luke, are found, you'll find that all the harmonies place them at different times. I think the Luke one actually at the, at the, uh, the Last Supper period, the, the Passion Week. But anyway, the main point is <clears throat> that if that be the case, then that statement there was at least mentioned by Christ on two occasions. And Christ taught about a future restoration of Israel and the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. You should read how Armillenius try to expand on this verse. It, it's hopeless. It, it misses the obvious point. I've heard John MacArthur even put it. This is the death knell, if you like. If you just take it for what it says, it's plain and obvious. <clears throat> and leads me to conclude, therefore, again, the fact that I, I take this stand because I'm a Gentile. <laughs> I'm a goy. <laughs> and uh, maybe we have some Jewish people back here. If you're Jewish, you love being a Jew. I'm a goy. I love being a Gentile. But we together can have glorious unity in our difference. That's the point in Galatians uh, 3.28. <clears throat> There's neither male nor female, bond nor free, Jew nor Gentile. When it says they're Jew nor Gentile, it doesn't mean suddenly we're all sort of morphed into one type of being. My wife is still a lady and I'm a gentleman and we are one in Christ, but we have the distinction of being male and female. That's what Galatians 3.28 is. We're all one in Christ Jesus. I as a male, my wife as a female, we're one. It's the unity with distinction. I could go, Ephesians 2 is saying the same thing. I go other places. Again, God loves variety with unity. He does it with the 12 tribes of Israel in one nation of Israel. The whole world, the creation, is full of unity with great diversity, you know. And that's the point. Finally, the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And there shall be Jews and there shall be Gentiles all redeemed. God glories in that. It's obvious what the scriptures are saying. We are not just going to be melded, molded into one sort of clone-like existence. Scriptures don't teach that. Again, I close with this thought. My whole concern is here that I have been saved by a Jew. A perfect Jew has saved me. He's coming back again. He'll come back as a Jew. He'll have now prints in his hands. He'll come back for the Gentiles and a Jewish following as well. And we'll all together know glorious unity, Jew and Gentile, under one saving Christ. What a glorious future that is. All Israel shall be saved, and they'll be in their land. And the Gentiles will surround all about there, and we'll be all united in Christ Jesus. Let's close in prayer. <clears throat> our gracious God, our Father, how we do rejoice in the truth of your word. Come what men may say. We think of all the darkness of the past and the mistreatment of the Jewish people. How we must be ashamed if the Jews will weep at his return. Ought not we Gentiles to weep at that time too when we think of what we have done in Christ's name to these Jewish people? Oh, our Father, we confess our sin on behalf of the whole Christian entity. We pray, our Father, you receive our, our, our confession, our repentance, and we shall endeavour to make them jealous 
by the graciousness of our lives. We ask in Jesus, our Saviour's name. Amen.